Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradigan. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Senate joined the House in passing an $858 billion National Defense Authorization Act, the biggest ever package in history that included a key GOP demand absent which the measure would not have been possible, rescinding the Pentagon mandate that all military members be vaccinated against COVID or face discharge. Those discharged, however, will not be reinstated nor receive back pay. The measure also included another $800 million in funding for Ukraine and billions more to improve Taiwan's defenses. As Russia continues to pound Ukraine's infrastructure, Washington is considering sending Patriot anti-missile batteries to help Kyiv improve its air and missile defenses, a move that Moscow claims would be a serious provocation. Meanwhile, Ukrainian leaders in an extraordinary series of articles in this week's Economist explain the dire nature of the gains they've made to date and the methodical manner in which the Russians are improving their capabilities as they bolster both their defenses and manpower for major drives, not just to retake recently liberated areas, but also make another bid for Kyiv. Moscow also is negotiating a major arms deal with Iran, swapping heavy weapons for more drones and long-range missiles with which to pummel Ukrainians. As the world focuses on Russia and China, President Biden hosted African leaders for a week-long summit, pledging $55 billion in investment across the vast continent in an effort to woo nations away from China and Russia. The message from African leaders was skepticism. Washington has made grand pledges in the past only to fall short, and the president of the African Union, Senegal's Macky Sall, made clear that the continent doesn't want to choose sides, but work with all as its economies take off. China has lifted COVID restrictions as the nation girds for higher COVID rates that could also hamper an already shaky economy as Japan unveiled both its national security strategy and national defense strategy. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms who also made it on uh, the most influential lobbyists list uh, put out by the Hill each year. Uh, special congratulations uh, on that. Michael, uh, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend of the Center for a New American Security, who also co-hosts the Brussels Spouts uh, podcast. For anybody who is interested in NATO, I suggest you tune in. And former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome back to, uh, to the program. Uh, and before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Halifax International Security Forum and the Reagan National Defense Forum were sponsored by Leonardo. DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, and check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who uh, takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, welcome uh, back, Michael. Uh, hearty congratulations uh, again uh, for wanting, uh, being one of the uh, top uh, defense hired guns. Uh, I know that uh, the Iron Mike Herson of you likes that a lot, that <laughs> moniker. Um, and it was terrific seeing all of you uh, uh, this week uh, uh, in person. 
Um, looks like we've got an NDAA, and it looks like despite res uh, reservations and rhetoric, the president is going to be signing it. Uh, I want to go around the horn and get everybody's take, but I wanted to start off uh, with you on, uh, you know, what do you think is uh, illustrative? What do you think is important? What jumped out? And indeed, what are lawmakers uh, most um, happy about in the measure? Um, well, I think we really should roll this on to one discussion of NDAA. Uh, you know, CR and, and omnibus, because this is what we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And, you know, this is a season of miracles and it's finally all, you know, coming together. <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, if you talk about last week, you know, the NDA did, you know, pass the House and we went over some of the highlights uh, in the bill and obviously the same bill that passed the Senate um, last night. Uh, but it wasn't without, you know, um, you know, some roadblocks. Uh, there were some senators who insisted on some amendments in order to get, in order to vote for the NDAA. And if those amendments had passed, it would have forced the NDA to go back to the House again for final passage. But fortunately, those amendments did not pass. They agreed to vote on two. One was Senator Manchin's amendment on, you know, proposing an overhaul of permitting for energy projects, which, you know, Schumer promised him in exchange for his vote on the last reconciliation package. And President Biden came out with a supportive statement yesterday, but that was not enough to push it over the edge. Uh, it did fail and did have some Democrats as well as Republicans vote against it. Um, and now also Senator Ron Johnson and Ted Cruz uh, had an amendment vote on reinstating the troops, as you mentioned, who were discharged for not complying with the Pentagon's COVID vaccine mandate and to give them back pay. And that amendment failed as well. But the, at the end of the day, the NDA passed overwhelmingly uh, 83 to 11. Uh, so strong uh, bipartisan support. Uh, and the, you know, people voted against it with the usual characters. Um, but, I, you know, the only, you know, obviously, you know, like people like uh, Rand Paul and Josh Hawley, I will point out, you know, that Cory Booker did vote against the NDAA. And I think if he wants to be taken seriously as a presidential candidate in the future, this is a bill he's going to have to learn you know, to support in order to be the commander in chief. Um, now, we've had a lot of drama around the continuing resolution, right? Because, as you know, the government was set to run out of funding uh, today. And we've been talking for weeks how. I, I never felt that the 16th deadline would hold, that they would have to do another short-term CR to the 23rd, which is exactly uh, what they did. So uh, the House on Wednesday uh, passed a short-term CR, but it was razor thin. I mean, it passed 224 to 201. And that was because non-Republicans voted yes on the continuing resolution. If they did not get those non-Republicans, they would not have been able to pass uh, the CR. Um, and then you know, the CR went over to the Senate. And again, there was insistence on certain amendments being voted on uh, in the Senate in order to uh, get this uh, finally down to a final vote for final passage. And one of the amendments would, was to offer to extend the CR into early next year. Fortunately, uh, that did uh, fail. Um, and, uh, and also there was an amendment by Rick Scott to rescind the funding for the IRS agents, which was included in the last uh, reconciliation bill. And I wouldn't even say IRS agents. It's really IRS employees that are being added to help you know, collect you know, back taxes, uh, which uh, fortunately also that vote failed as well. And the CR passed again with a big margin in the Senate, uh, 71 uh, to 19, all right? So now government's funded till next Friday. Now I will say too that they are preparing another short-term pass just in case uh, the omnibus doesn't pass by then. But right now there's a lot of optimism that we will get an omnibus pass by next, the end of next week. Um, now the appropriate struck a deal uh, Tuesday night uh, and laid out a framework uh, for the omnibus. But what's, what's noteworthy is that the framework was really laid out by Senator Leahy, you know, who's the Democratic chairman in the Senate, Senator Shelby, who's a Republican ranking member, and Congresswoman DeLauro, who chairs the H House Appropriations Committee. The Republicans have not, in the House, have not been participating in this framework discussion because McCarthy is in a tough spot trying to continue to woo votes from the Freedom Caucus 
And those folks are against passing uh, an omnibus this year. They want to kick it into next year. So right now, McCarthy has come out saying that he will be a hell no on the omnibus. Uh, however, uh, I do expect an omnibus to be released on Monday. Uh, I think right now the Senate will probably take it up on Wednesday uh, um, with the House hopefully taking it up Thursday or Friday. And there will be a substantial number of House Republicans that will vote to pass the omnibus. Uh, I've talked to several of them uh, who take the National Security Challenge seriously and know that we need to fund the Department of Defense. Uh, and even said to me, they don't even care what's in the other bills, but they know how important it is. If we're going to take the China challenge seriously, that we need to get this passed. Um, now, the, it looks like the top line will be what we've talked about before. It'll be about $1.7 trillion. And uh, in addition to the Ukraine aid we've talked about in the past being added, uh, all of the ranking and, and chairs of the Senate Formulations and House Foreign Affairs Committee are also asking for additional funds to be made available for uh, Taiwan as well. Uh, they're asking for $500 million uh, for the foreign military, uh, for foreign military financing to be available, and another billion uh, to replenish weapons systems and equipment using presidential drawdown authority. Uh, so I would anticipate that you know getting added as well, and that this finally getting done uh, by Christmas time. Um, I, you know, you uh, characterize this as a season of uh, miracles, uh, which for many it is, but for some it is just Festivus, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and airing, uh, airing of grievances. Let me just uh, quickly, uh, speaking of airing of grievances, um, Manchin, um, you know, you, you mentioned and Chuck Schumer has worked hard even uh, uh, against pressure from his own side. Uh, but Schumer's point uh, is, hey, look, we made a deal in order to get the health care and climate vote uh, from Manchin. We really need to pass this. Is there going to be any lingering repercussion? Right. I mean, the Democrats lost Kristen Cinema. Uh, um, you know, Manchin knows that his vote is um, very important if the Democrats want to achieve anything, especially in such a, a closely divided body uh, as the Senate. Um, you know, and Democrats will not have the House uh, either. Right. So that actually augments his power uh, potentially. Um, how does the is there any lingering effect to this, do you think? Um, none whatsoever. It's completely meaningless. Okay. Right? But the, with the Republicans in charge of the House now and the Democrats keeping control of the Senate, um, the, all that really means next year is that the Senate is going to be able to confirm Biden appointees, whether they're to his um, his cabinet posts or uh, sub cabinet posts, executive branch team and judges. And I don't see that changing. Manchin and Cinema are going to support most of those nominees. And now they don't need uh, Kamala Harris there as a tie-breaking vote for most of those votes. So that's that's gonna, those are going to sail through. And no real major legislation is going to pass next year because of the fact that Congress is divided. The best we can hope for next year is an NDAA and 12 appropriations bills. And even that is going to be a challenge uh, next year. Uh, so I, I think that the, the fact that cinema is independent is not going to change the way she votes. Manchin certainly is not going to change the way he votes. Um, and we don't need to worry about reconciliation bills, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, infrastructure bills. None of those things are going to be uh, talked about for the next two years. Um, you, you've uh, got to jump out uh, in a minute. So I'll put this question to you because we're going to talk about Africa deeper uh, in uh, the show. Um, is there do you think is there's going to be support for 55 billion? You know, I mean, the president obviously is looking at a multi-year package in terms of investment. Uh, for Africa. This is a part of the world that's very important. Everybody is saying the United States, including members of Congress, that we have to compete better uh, around the world. African leaders are very skeptical. Uh, they've heard this song and dance from the United States before. Um, you know, do you think that that folks are 
have a, the kind of strategic focus. This is one of the most important continents in the world. It's becoming economically more important. It's in many ways becoming an economic power uh, and everybody else on the planet seems to recognize it except Washington where you know, we look at it as a famine relief mission and we created AFRICOM, but we're not engaged the way that we need to be. Do you think that there is a sense by members that this time needs to be different? I, I think there is, right? But I, th- I think that this is not going to be easy next year. Uh, and, you know, if McCarthy's speaker next year, whoever the speaker is, is going to have uh, a, a core group of Republicans that could be against this kind of spending as well as, you know, against the Ukraine spending. But I think that for things like this, especially if we are really going to take this China challenge um, seriously, then we have to be able to make these investments. I mean, we've been whining and complaining about China's Belt and Road Initiative for years. And that's you know prevalent throughout the continent of Africa. Um, so I think you know it'll require leadership from folks like Mike Gallagher, who's going to be chairing the new uh, select committee and the national security leaders in the House. Uh, I think it's going to be very painful, but I think and I'm, I'm hopeful at the end of the day that we can st- we can get it done. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. I know you've got to go. Hope you and yours have a very happy Hanukkah. Uh, and uh, we'll see you next week to uh, uh, close out uh, the year with our uh, year in re- review program. Thanks very much. Great. Thank you. Dove, uh, I want to go to you. You're the former comptroller uh, in our midst. And then I'm going to go around the horn as well about what uh, uh, both uh, Jim and Patrick saw that was interesting from a European as well as from an Asian uh, perspective and Asia Pacific perspective in this budget. But Dove, start us off. What are some of the things that you thought uh, were interesting uh, in in the measure and how it passed and what it tells us about, you know, sort of what what we should be expecting next year? Well, the big story, of course, is that a bipartisan uh, Congress, uh, bipartisan members uh, supported uh, this huge increase over what President Biden was asking for. Now, they were folks that I spoke to in the Pentagon who basically said they expected it. And one suspects that they came in with a lower number expecting that Congress would raise it anyway. The challenge, of course, is what it happens when Congress adds money that they really don't want in the Pentagon. Uh, a good example of that is what happened with the Navy, which this year uh, got more than the, uh, any of the other services, uh, but it got 12 ships that the Pentagon really didn't want. Um, that includes a bunch of these littoral combat ships and four amphibious ships. And in fact, not only did the uh, NDAA add these ships, but Congress also, or at least the uh, NDAA, now says that the uh, the Commandant of the Marine Corps is the one who determines amphibious requirements. And that, of course, complicates how the Navy looks at problems. And it then says, in addition, that the Chief of Naval Operations really has to consult the Commandant of the Marine Corps. And and there's language in there that says, well, we're not really creating frictions. But the answer is, of course, they're creating frictions. They've also added uh, over a billion dollars for Navy munitions. So clearly, and you mentioned Mike Gallagher, um, Congress is really deeply concerned that the Navy has been underfunded and that the Pacific is, in fact, uh, a maritime concern more than it would be a land-based concern. We're not about to invade China. So all of that was, I think, a very strong message to the Pentagon. It's going to be interesting to see what they do for fiscal 24 in light of that. Uh, another thing that they did, of course, was add more money for Ukraine. President asks for 300 million. Um, they give him 800 million. Uh, now, we know that there's a, a, a pocket of uh, opposition to 
sending more money for uh, troops, for rather uh, munitions and equipment to Ukraine. Uh, but my guess is that the money that's already been approved will last them, last the Ukrainians somewhere into the spring. And there will be at least one more add on. Uh, and even if the House comes in low uh, in conference, uh, I suspect that those the conferees will go with the higher Senate number. The final thing I, I point out uh, from a green eye shade comptroller perspective is that the NDAA allows for six billion dollars in transfer authority that's moving money from one account to another in light of uh, developments in given uh, programs. Uh, and I just would point out that we're talking about a budget north of 850 billion. Uh, and when I was comptroller and I had a budget of about 450 billion or roughly just less than half, I had $4 billion of transfer authority. So they've doubled the size of the budget and only added 50% to a transfer authority level that in any event is far too low for what's needed when you've got uh, rapidly changing technologies needs to move quickly and to find money, for example, like the munitions, which nobody really talked about in any serious way in previous years. Uh, I uh, I couldn't agree with you more about the importance to refill uh, munition stocks, although I do think it sends the Navy a bad signal. The service really has mismanaged its resources and is getting a major plus up uh, at a time when actually air power is as, if not uh, more important in terms of the capabilities it's going to bring to the uh, Western Pacific. Uh, so I always find it a little bit troubling, you know, and, and I understand the case the Army makes uh, that we're an important, uh, you know, capability no matter where we are. And they had to take a hit on force structure, although that was a bus uh, that we saw coming. Uh, for a long time, uh, alas, as we as we tend to reduce army and strength to cover everybody else's uh, investment. Um, Jim uh, and and Patrick, you guys have been very patient. Uh, Jim, I want to start with you uh, in terms of what elements of this budget uh, you know stood out for you from a European uh, investment context. Before we get uh, to uh, discussing the entire Patriot. Uh, transfer and indeed, right, we hear there are F 16s and a number of other systems that are in the pipeline. The United States increasing uh, certainly training and tra uh, training of Ukrainians in, in Germany. There's a lot of efforts going on to rebuild equipment and help Ukrainians repair equipment. Walk us through the elements of this from a European, NATO, uh, and Ukraine perspective that you found most interesting. Well, I think the uh, amount of money uh, that, that Dove was just talking about, uh, I was glad to see that. Because my fear uh, coming into the next year and the year after that is we're going to have a lot of pressure on, on that kind of spending as we've been talking about. And you're not going to see packages that big anymore, or at least you won't see them as, as often, that things will drag out. So for me, coming out of that package, the, the $800 million was a real blessing. Um, I'm not so sure that'll take us into too far into the spring. I, I think that there's a, there's a lot of fighting to be done and a, there's a lot of purchases that need to be made to keep the Ukrainian um, army going. And so I'm, I'm afraid that'll last us into early spring and then we had better be ready with another package. And we'll see where we are with this new house. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm afraid we got delays ahead of us. But, but other than that, just, just on the other things you were talking about, patriots and what might be in the pipeline, um, you know, the, the attacks today were, were uh, was it was a pretty big attack on the Ukraine infrastructure and uh, and we're not really into the deep part of winter yet and Ukraine is just increasingly looking like a real tragedy case 
So the West is going to have to do more of the military assistance. And so the monies that we've been seeing right now going to military equipment, some of it was going to generators. I think we've got bigger problems uh, when there's not just uh, uh, generators that have to be bought, but lots of spare parts for uh, electrical production and, uh, and humanitarian assistance, which will come from other budgets. So I, uh, I, I think this winter that we're getting into, that $800 million going for military assistance is going to be, I'm afraid, a drop in the bucket as we have to do more on the humanitarian side. But that brings up Europe. Uh, I was uh, watching Morning Joe today, and um, and I've heard some uh, some in the Congress uh, uh, again raising burden sharing, uh, raising what are the Europeans doing? And if you uh, look just at the military side of what Europe is doing, it's 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 really missing uh, so much that's happening to them economically. What's happening to them in terms of the you know, refugee support, which is growing now, coming out of Ukraine because of these attacks. There's a lot that Europe is doing that's not being counted. And so I, I think we can't afford to have some mudslinging between Europe and the U.S. over who's doing the most. Um, and uh, I think Germany, for sure, has been targeted uh, as not doing enough. I think Germany will is going to catch it one way or another in terms of the military assistance. But I, I really think we've got to uh, pull together and particularly start looking at these humanitarian needs as we get into January, February, March. Uh, at the same time, uh, the ground will be getting harder. We are, we'll probably see some type of, of uh, Ukraine offensive um, um, movements as well. That'll also create demand for munitions and replenishment. So we've got a really complicated winter spring coming up. Uh, and uh, I, I, that will be no time for the Republicans to be doing investigations and, uh, and delaying packages. Uh, while there's going to be a really great need. And again, like I said, Europe has got to be part of this equation. Uh, Europe can always do more. Uh, but I, what I don't want to see is the mudslinging where we start fighting each other. That's just what Putin would want to see. Um, let me uh, ask, uh, you know, sort of right, Russia always comes out and says this, this, that or the other thing is a red line. And, you know, I think don't start a war if you don't want your butt kicked, I think would be the simplest advice. Uh, and at this point, right, all, all bets are off. Uh, and I believe we should be uh, transferring patriots, we should be transferring aircraft, we should be transferring ATACMs and every other uh, system out there. And, and um, I commend to the audience the extraordinary series of articles in The uh, Economist where Ukrainian leaders all the way from Zelensky to the chief of staff to the chief of the land forces, all making the case that actually the Russians really are improving their game on the ground. They're not only setting up uh, defenses, uh, but they're also, uh, you know, bolstering the capabilities with which to uh, do another uh, big offensive, not just to take back areas uh, that were recently liberated, but actually to take Kiev itself. And, you know, I've said this and a couple of our uh, listeners uh, always send me this note that, you know, my, my Terminator analogy about Vladimir Putin, he is the Terminator. He's a learning adversary. He now has a very bold commander uh, there, um, who is, uh, you know, executes whatever his boss wants to execute in brutal fashion, uh, having earned his stripes in, uh, you know, as we were talking, uh, Dove, I'm not trying to take your thunder, but it's a point you've made before uh, on this program, right? Does, do folks understand the gravity of the situation that what the Russians are doing is to systemically try to dismantle Ukraine, play the long game, and, are, uh, and may actually be said, you know, the fact that they were really bad when they started does not mean they will stay bad. 
And there's a lot of stuff that they're doing to sharpen their game. They're about to do a major deal with the uh, Iranians to get more equipment. Um, you know, I guess it's a two-part question. You know, should we be cognizant of any red lines at this point? Because every few weeks, you know, Washington seems to panic itself about this. And second, do folks really understand the gravity of the situation that the Russians aren't anywhere near done with this? And it is us win or he wins. And it's that binary. And there's not really a lot of negotiating space in there. Well, uh, I, I agree with everything you're saying. And I think particularly on the Patriots, you know, given these nightly attacks on the Ukraine uh, civilian targets, the idea that we would hold back Patriots. I mean, I realize we're, we're, we are thin on the ground with Patriots too, uh, but, but there is a crying need for better air defense in some of these key areas in Ukraine. Uh, and so the idea that we would you know, hold them back and that we would wring our hands and think about red lines is ridiculous. I think it's a humanitarian move at a minimum to try to knock some of these missiles out of the sky and I think that's what Patriot does, and we've got to get those in. And I agree on attackums as well. I, I cannot see uh, that we will allow this to turn into a stalemate, and we will see Ukraine bleeding uh, while nothing is moving on the battlefield because they're both at a militarily uh, at a stalemate. I, I think this is something that we're going to find ourselves in if we if we uh, deter uh, our ourselves, if we every other. Uh, month, we get concerned about red lines and we hear the rattling nuclear saber from Moscow and, uh, and we hold back. And so it's we've got to push this to a res resolution and we shouldn't be sitting here and wringing our hands over it. So I, I agree with you. And I don't think official Washington in the White House, certainly they're aware of it, but they just cannot get their arms around it. They're aware of it in terms of this idea of of uh, self-deterrence, but I think they, they seem to not be able to deal with it very well. Uh, Dove, uh, I want to bring you in, and whether folks here in Washington understand, you know, there's this sense of triumphalism, and Ukrainians made terrific gains, but the Russians are a very learning adversary. You and I were in Halifax and had, you know, I certainly had some interesting conversations uh, where uh, Ukrainian officials were not particularly eager uh, or, or were very eager not to discuss how the Russians were actually improving their game for OPSEC and other reasons. Obviously, they've decided to lift that curtain. Um, you know, your, your sense on, on all of this and where do you think it's going next? And more importantly, what is it we need to be doing? Doing right now to avoid a catastrophe when the ground is very solid uh, in January and armored vehicles can move. Well, I won't repeat what Jim said because I totally agree with him, but I want to point out something else. Um, we are very bad, we as a nation, and looks like we as an administration, are very bad at remembering history. The Russians are not, and quite frankly, neither are the Ukrainians. The Russians did not do very well against the Nazis in the first couple of years of the war, 1930, 1941 to 43. But by then, they turned around and they wound up in Berlin. And I guarantee you, this is what Mr. Putin is thinking. Look at what they're doing right now in the areas they control. They're building trenches. They're building uh, tank traps. They're doing everything they can to create a World War I situation so that they can hold out for a couple of years, maybe get a friendlier administration in Washington, maybe get Washington to just give up. Uh, and in the meantime, to slow things down, they rattle the nuclear saber, not because they're going to use it, 
And, and not even because they think that we won't send Patriots or some other equipment, but just to slow things down because they recognize that the administration is very, very slow. So I think they've got a strategy. I think the Ukrainians, who after all said and done were part of the Soviet Union during World War II, know exactly what the strategy is. Uh, and uh, quite frankly, it's not clear to me that we understand it. No, I, I, I agree completely. I have worried about that World War II analogy uh, for a long time. And we've got to remember that the Russians will come back. And I and if, if I can just say one more thing, I, I'm, I'm hearing that there's a there's thinking in the Pentagon that uh, really the Russians are not 10 feet tall. They're only two feet tall. They're not a big threat. We've pushed forces into uh, Europe uh, early and uh, in the invasion that now maybe we've got to rethink our force posture and we need to maybe pull some of the forces back or not do as many rotations because we're not dealing with the Russia that we thought we'd be dealing with or the threat that we thought we'd be dealing with. And I just think that is, you know, such a short-term point of view, as Dove said, and it's exactly right, that the Russians were in Berlin in 1945 and it only took about two years of recovery to get there. And uh, we don't know what kind of Russian military that we're going to see in a few years. Uh, we, we don't know what that is. And yet we are beginning to do some actions. So I understand, or at least thinking about doing some actions based on what we think the situation is today, not what it could be in a few years with Russia. We are all in agreement on this program. Patrick, you've been very patient and I want to bring you in uh, for uh, the discussion, but also get you to weigh in uh, on this, right? I mean, the administration on the one hand has made a very uh, bright line uh, between we have to deter, uh, right, Vladimir Putin has to lose in Ukraine, otherwise it sends uh, a bad signal. Um, you know, how how are you viewing, right, and I, I have to say, I mean, there are a lot of people in the senior military leadership who did not want to do anything uh, or particularly much to help uh, Ukraine because they wanted all of this investment to be flowing to better increasing capabilities for China. In fact, this is seen as a drag, right? A number of folks have flat out told me, I'd much rather, Vago, have that $100 billion invested in bolstering Pacific capabilities uh, than going into this conflict, even if some have changed their minds since and understand the strategic rationale. From your point, Patrick, um, what are the signals? What are the tea leaves? And uh, you know, you're a cross-cutting analyst, even though your focus is Asia Pacific. Um, your your sense on sort of where we're going and whether folks are flagging maybe or or looking for an excuse to turn away. Let, let's put it that way from Ukraine. Well, if we're looking for an excuse to turn away, it's because the rest of the world is moving even faster than Russia is in Ukraine. But on this point, first, I would agree with Dove and Jim, don't let up America, don't let up transatlantic alliance. We have to make sure Ukraine doesn't lose this conflict uh, and Russia has a lot of resources at its disposal now, and Putin's willing to use them in any way he wants. Um, but, and this is the counterpoint I would make to everything that's been said, <clears throat> if you look at something like, say, Anthony Quartersman's Major Powers and Strategic Partners, a graphic net assessment that's online that he put out earlier this month, a series of charts. Um, so the, the the trajectory for Russia in the longer term is very sad. And I, I see Putin, as long as we keep up the pressure and the support for Ukraine, the pressure on Putin, um, you know, Ukraine wins, we win, and Russia accelerates its decline if it's not, doesn't find an off-ramp eventually. That's how I see this conflict. It doesn't mean all the dangers that we've just heard aren't real. They are. Russia could make gains. Russia is willing to do all sorts of things Putin is. But 
I'm telling you the fundamental power uh, balance right now is still against Putin and Russia in the longer term. And uh, Patrick, I, I would like to bring you in on the defense budget uh, discussion uh, as well, uh, because the conversation sort of ended up being focused on on, on Russia, Ukraine. Uh, your your sense on what the most interesting elements of this are, because it does look like uh, the United States is stepping up aid, for example, to Taiwan uh, and for the Asia Pacific in a rather dramatic fashion. Walk us through what you think are the most interesting elements of 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 the NDAA. If you're thinking about this defense budget from the perspective of the Indo-Pacific, this budget makes U.S. armed forces stronger. It strengthens U.S. extended deterrence. Uh, it strengthens the things like the porcupine strategy that we uh, are allegedly support in Taiwan. It gives them some real sharp quills by starting to deal with this almost $19 billion backlog in weapons delivery to Taiwan by providing that $10 billion of financing. You know, Taiwan has been promised javelins and stingers since 2017 that have not been delivered. It's We're, we're supposed to be selling them harpoon anti-ship missiles that aren't promised till 2026. Well, actually, now we finally have some real resources going in to accelerate this, to, to sort of uh, deal with this backlog. And that's very important for Taiwan's reassurance, for the deterrence across the strait. And by the way, Admiral Aquilino, great interview with Nick Schifrin on the PBS NewsHour last night, um, said that in his 38 years in uniform, this is the most dangerous period he's ever been in. Um, and he was specifically talking about Xi Jinping's uh, strategic objective toward Taiwan. So it, this, is a, this is a very timely budget. It makes us stronger. It makes our allies stronger. I'd also cite the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. It's gone up 50% from $7 billion. It'll be going up to $11 billion. That, that will provide the ability to build critical infrastructure in the region, conduct more joint and combined exercises in the region, uh, and therefore build capacity with allies and partners in the region. And preserving nuclear options by allowing the uh, Slickham in research money to continue, not doing away with the uh, B-83-1 bombs that uh, you know threaten potentially the hardened underground targets of people like Kim Jong-un, who just was watching his uh, solid fuel rocket engine test yesterday, um, threatening a new strategic weapon, meaning uh, a solid fuel ICBM that he has on the books uh, hoping to come. And we'll probably see in a parade sometime between now and April of next year. So these are this is a very good budget for America's defense and for America's allies and partners uh, globally, but in the Indo-Pacific in particular. Um, give us uh, an update, uh, please, on uh, Japan's national security strategy and national defense strategy, both out uh, today, so very fresh uh, for a lot of people in uh, Washington. We've discussed this, that it was uh, coming uh, and it was going to be a watershed moment in many respects. Um, you know, some neuralgia and ill ease on the part of some uh, for a Japan as assertive. I have to say it's interesting talking to French friends of mine. Uh, French friends, um, you know, in in discussing the Titan vendor, the um, remarkable ill ease with Germany increasing defense spending that much, right? And in this day and age, you would think that that would be an unjustified concern uh, uh, of alliance and partnership between Germany and France. Uh, and yet, it's it's interesting how um, you know, with a country that's made reconciliation much more of a focus in Germany's case, right? I mean, the criticism of Japan is that it has not fully made reconciliation uh, or restitution. You know, what, what does this document mean? What does it mark? And how do people need to be thinking about it? 
Sure. Uh, and just a, a flip comment on the Germans. Uh, it would be nice if the Germans didn't support the Chinese economy so much. Um, you know, that would be a, a huge contribution. So that's where we're worried about Chancellor Schultz's recent visit to, to, to Beijing. Um, you know, the, the Germans uh, need to do what the French and the British and the EU are already doing, which is to uh, basically not decouple, but disentangle uh, the vulnerabilities that we have in our, our global economy from China's uh, party state economy. Um, I think here on the uh, national defense strategy of uh, the national security strategy of Japan, the national defense uh, strategy, I'm sorry, on Japan's new national security strategy, national defense strategy, and defense capability improvement plan, all of them released at the same time this week. Um, this is uh, transformational. I mean, and I, I wasn't going to use that word because that's the, the word that Japanese want to use but it really is transformation. When you think about what's happened in the decade since the last strategy was issued, um, it was 2013. Shinzo Abe was at the beginning of a, what was going to be a very successful second stint as prime minister. He had just pushed; he was just pushing through a new, a newly created National Security Council, which hadn't existed before. Well, this new strategy, by the way, creates a new joint command, which they've never had in Japan. So the services don't fend for themselves; they actually have to have a serious joint command now as a result of this. And they were pushing through uh, 10 years ago through the diet, the legal scaffolding needed for more normal Japan with respect to international security. Well, this plan, this strategy, this budget adds things like counterstrike capabilities. And they're, they're putting in $3.7 billion for missiles, including thousand mile range Tomahawk cruise missiles. But that's not all they're doing. I mean, this is where I think you have to look at some of the amazing things they're doing with this, besides the Joint Command, besides the missiles. Um, introduction of unmanned weapons uh, is going to be serious. They're actually abolishing a whole set of observation and combat helicopters and pushing those functions to unmanned vehicles, for instance. They're reinforcing space operations capabilities. So the Air Self-Defense Force is actually going to be reorganized as an aerospace self-defense with a specialized space domain uh, entity. Um, this is an eightfold increase in cyber capabilities. Uh, they're, um, the, the missiles are not just longer range, but they're going to be adding uh, hypersonic glide missiles. Um, they're enhancing the research and development. They're building up information warfare at the Defense Intelligence Headquarters. Um, they'll be building new units in the Self-Defense Forces for information warfare and, and getting into the cognitive domain. That's, that is transformational. And that's why I think U.S. Ambassador Rahm Emanuel said this is a new era in the defense of democracy. The Biden administration unilaterally, I mean, uh, rather uh, unanimously from president to the secretary of defense to the national security advisor have talked about this being a historic time. Um, and, and from a bipartisan stance, again, just like the NDA, um, strong bipartisan support. You see that, for instance, in the statement put out by Senator Bill Haggerty, former ambassador, Republican ambassador to Japan, Democrat Ben Cardin, put out a joint statement saying this, these are the bold and necessary steps that we needed Japan to take. China, meanwhile, you know, not surprisingly, has declared this doomed to fail. Um, but, you know, China's suggesting what? That uh, if you only uh, appease Beijing, that's the only way to succeed. Um, I think this is clearly a response to what China's been doing, um, and it's it's uh, it's exactly the right move that that's needed for Japan and for um, U.S. and for free and open Indo-Pacific. 
Uh, Dove, uh, you uh, have a piece uh, that uh, just uh, went live uh, on the Hill. Uh, military technology cooperation with key allies outweighs uh, the risk of leaks uh, to enemies. Uh, give us uh, sort of your sense uh, on, on all of this that we've heard, but also uh, how the United States needs to be working with allies and partners, right? I mean, the administration uh, has been talking about expanding uh, trade uh, with partners uh, on the one hand, on the other hand, has by American messaging on the other hand, um, you know, this sort of sense of, well, we have to be very, very careful because we don't want to be proliferating technology, right? Which to some are contradictory messages. And there are some allies and partners that are still waiting on capability. I'm sorry, you know, Taiwan has been waiting because we don't have Javelin and, uh, you know, the production lines are just not able or, or extant uh, or have to be restarted. Uh, and whatever we're drawing from inventory reduces the amount we can send China. So we have to wait for new met weapons to be to be built. Um, give us give us your sense on this before we really quickly we do have to discuss Africa before uh, we part uh, for for the day. Go ahead, Duff. Well, very briefly, I think uh, the last point you made is why Congress added so much money to munitions. Uh, I mentioned Navy munitions, but it wasn't only Navy munitions. Um, my point in the article was very straightforward, uh, and this follows up in particular on what Patrick just said. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about Japan joining AUKUS. Um, the defense minister of Australia said, yeah, it's a good idea. Uh, we'll see you know, when we actually want to move with this. Uh, but he certainly didn't reject it. And we're not talking about building submarines. I think the Japanese, uh, even if they want to go beyond home islands, uh, they can use uh, air independent propulsion to do to really uh, use their conventional submarines in an effective way. But the real issue is this. If you want Japan and, for instance, Sweden, which looks like it's going to be involved in upgrading the Collins class, if you want to bring the French in, who, after all, have some nuclear capability or whoever, countries that we otherwise could trust, if you want to bring them in, the only way you're going to be able to do that uh, in a serious way is to treat them the way we treat the Brits and the Australians, which is to say we've got to ease up on the tech transfer. And my argument is the Chinese are stealing everything anyway. And if they don't steal it, the Russians steal it. And if they don't steal it, maybe the Iranians steal it. So the risk of losing more, in my view, is far lower than the gains to be had with true technology cooperation, which, by the way, if we added several countries to AUKUS, would really get Beijing's attention. Uh, I couldn't couldn't agree with you more on that, uh, Dove. I mean, we have a tendency of, uh, look, I mean, some of it is commercial, uh, obviously, that's the case for uh, everybody. Uh, but I think that often we are a little bit too cautious, including with our allies and partners. Um, you know, and, and, and at the end of the day, unfortunately, espionage being what it is, there have been a new, you know, a number of cases that, you know, whether it's involved Japan or Taiwan or, or other countries where uh, some of our capabilities have been compromised, you know, through the good old fashioned espionage way. And indeed, you know, com compromised here at home in terms of top secret programs uh, that have been penetrated one way or another. So, you know, it's, it's important to be careful uh, while while actually not stymieing your ability to work with your allies and partners. Yeah, but you, you've just proved my point, which is look at all the leaks and, the, and what's been stolen, even with the tough technology transfer protocols that we have. Right. So how much more will leak uh, if we ease up on those? It ain't going to be all that much, but boy, will there be a difference if we let Japan, France, Sweden, whoever, uh, into the inner circles of technology cooperation. 
Uh, and, and I agree with you. Those are the countries actually you should be bringing in because the Swedes have terrific technology. The French have terrific technology. They want to play a role in the Asia Pacific, uh, constructive role. Uh, and uh, I think that they also have some very unique technology, specifically their nuclear technology, um, which could be very, very attractive to solving some of these challenges. I'm all for expanding the U.S. submarine industrial base to the point where we can actually satisfy all of these needs. My concern is I'm not necessarily sure that we will be able to do that. And I think speed is critical uh, and fielding this capability in 20, uh, you know, 40, uh, given what Lung Aquilino has been telling everybody, right? We're in the most dangerous period now, and we can't be worried about, the, you know, what it, you know, well, we'll field capability in 2035. We, we may actually have missed the bus at that point. Right now is the time that we should be deterring. And indeed, Navy investment, if we can get ships forward as a way to shape and deter, as well as enough air power to shape and deter, that's that's very, very important. Um, get off my soapbox, sorry about that. Uh, very quickly, I wanna go around the horn on the Africa summit. Uh, Africa looms large, uh, increasingly large, no pun intended for uh, a vast uh, continent. Um, and, and Jim, start with you, Patrick, you, and then finish with you, Dove, on the approach and how do we, how do we do this? Uh, the French have long been uh, involved in Africa, obviously for uh, um, you know colonial reasons, historic reasons, cultural reasons. Uh, there are francophone nations in Africa, and France does uh, you know pick up a military burden. Um, you know China has been competing increasingly aggressively. The Russians since Soviet times have been there uh, as well. Uh, Jim, as uh, as uh, you or I, I can't remember if it was Michael who made that point. And now, um, you know, here we are with African nations saying we don't want to be forced to choose and we won't choose. Uh, we want to do business with everybody. At the same time, you know, from an African leader's perspective, George uh, W. Bush said uh, he was going to do more. Obama said he was going to do more. Trump was downright offensive. Uh, and Biden now is saying he's going to do more. And from their standpoint, it's only your military interest. You're just interested in, you know, countering terrorism to protect yourself, not necessarily improving our lot. Does this mark a shift? And what does this mean from a European perspective? What does it mean from an Asia perspective? Uh, and Dove, perhaps, what does it mean from a Washington perspective? Because I think we've got to get this right. Our attitude can't be, we'll just spend a couple of billion dollars every time there's a famine in order to do remediation work or just be countering terrorism. We need to be engaged in investing in this continent in a much more dramatic way. Jim, Patrick, and then Dove, go ahead. Well, like you point out, it's not just France that has had, uh, you know, hist historical ties with Africa, but a number of, of uh, European nations, but the European Union, even more importantly, has uh, a big Africa program, too. So uh, the idea that um, by having this this big uh, uh, all Africa conference here in Washington that tied up traffic and cost millions and seem to be a big show, uh, you know, th th that's the Europe and, and prevented England. you from joining us for dinner, by the way. Right. So I apologize indeed, for that. Indeed, indeed. But it's but so Europe has been involved in this, too. They're not going to bring the resources that we do, but uh, they've been down there. And I and it'll be interesting, I think, to see if they're going to look on us as as a as just getting in the way or if they are uh, concerned that we're going to be uh, pushing Africa towards the U.S. rather than working with Europe, or uh, they're going to welcome us and say, the more the merrier. We need all the hands we can get working down here. Uh, I know France certainly will want us to focus on areas of importance to them. And so it's going to be interesting just in terms of 
how we will work with Europe down there, because Europe is quite engaged down there on a national and, and through the European Union. And, and let's see if we're going to be good allies or not and work in a cooperative manner. But I will say, and you alluded to this, there's a lot of bad history there uh, concerning the U.S. and Africa and the U.S. not following through. And, you know, this administration has been great with rhetoric. I mean, it's been talking about Europe and it's talking about China, talking about Africa now in this grand setting uh, with highfalutin um, rhetoric and lots of promises and aspirations. Will we come through or not? I really don't know. We're really good at putting on a show, but the follow through is... Uh, is faltering in the past. And this administration is, is, uh, has shown that to be the case in some areas. So let's just see what they do. I think we need to hold their feet to the fire. Patrick? Vago, this is a, a huge subject. Um, you know, the when I was in the George W. Bush administration as the number three official at USAID, I worked for a man, Andrew Natsios, who was as committed as any American I know for African development. And he did a great deal. And the Bush administration did a great deal of mobilizing money and resources for Africa. And it did it by a 340% increase in the ODA from both state and AID for Africa. Uh, it did it by creating, as I hoped, the Millennium Development uh, Corporation, which funneled a number of compacts, $3.8 billion in compacts uh, to, toward Africa, um, $15 billion over five years for the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, which stopped the turn the tide on AIDS uh, in, in Africa. And that was just during the George W. Bush administration. The United States has played a historic role in Africa's development for all of its problems. Remember, colonization and decolonization uh, created um, huge tumult. We were doing you know, our assistance toward Africa initially during the Cold War. So yes, a big part of our effort on aid and foreign assistance, more than development assistance, was oriented toward stopping the wars of national liberation that the Soviet Union was trying to foment. Um, you know, after 9-11, we helped to fight counterterrorism across the Sahel and created AFRICOM. And while, you know, Africans maybe overall didn't appreciate that, that has played a role that wasn't just for the U.S. public good. It was a, it was a global public good as well. Um, now, as China has stepped up its footprint and its investments and its sort of activities and monies, uh, mostly for extraction and for access to Africa, um, increasingly the United States has come to terms that our projects, our, our assistance to Africa, uh, yes, it needs to help Africa for Africans and on their terms, but but we're also playing this geopolitical contest. That's the reality. So they may not want us uh, to force them to choose between the U.S. and China, but we also would be naive if we only think that we're doing development assistance in Africa. We are both doing development assistance to modernize Africa which is you know, already a quarter of the world's population as you project it out to the middle of this century um, to um, these geopolitical contests with China. And I saw this at AID when we set up the Millennium Challenge Corporation because China was starting to pour tens of billions of dollars into countries for extractive resource purposes. And the US was running around throwing $25 million here and there and, and all sorts of small projects that did a lot of local good but didn't add up to the kind of strategic weight that we needed. And so now we, we have to figure out how to do this. One RAND study that just came out was finally published this month on um, China's interest in global basing. Um, yeah, most of the basing is interested in East Asia, especially Southeast Asia and then South Asia and, and then the Gulf. But there are a lot of places in Africa that uh, beyond Djibouti 
that uh, China's eye in as well. So there is there is a definite military strategic dimension, not just the Belt and Road Initiative, economic competition, um, not just uh, helping Africa uh, develop. Finally, let me just again credit the Japanese because you know the the TCAD process that Japan has set up uh, since 1993. And this is they just held the eighth TCAD. That was the predecessor to the the global summit that the, the President Biden has just hosted. Um, so there's been close coordination with our major ally who provides development assistance to Africa, Japan, um, in setting up this summit. So I'm, I'm, I'm more bullish than others, but I don't expect this to transform Africa's many challenges. Uh, I don't expect us to win the competition with China because of this, but I think we're now engaged more effectively with Africa than we have been for a number of years. Uh, Dove, uh, you get the last word on this. And if you want to add anything about Israel or Iran, please uh, do so as well. Go ahead. I'll leave Israel and Iran to next week. Uh, but uh, first of all, the British have been much more active, probably in some ways as active as the French, uh, because of the Commonwealth and um, because they have prioritized uh, assistance. Uh, uh, Patrick and his colleagues deserve tremendous credit, particularly for PEPFAR. Uh, the anti-AIDS program, which literally has saved millions in Africa. And is, and President Bush, George W. Bush, when he gives speeches, he points to that as one of his greatest achievements. And he's right about that. But having said that, we've got two problems. The first is that the bureaucracy clearly does not put a high priority on Africa unless they're an Africa shop itself. And I don't know how you change that. Yes, when we're talking about some kind of transactional activity, say fighting the Ebola virus, we jump in there with both feet. Um, but for, for many Africans, we're seen primarily as, as a military uh, source, uh, fighting in the Sahel, which Patrick mentioned. And oh, by the way, it is interesting that the headquarters for AFRICOM is in Stuttgart, Germany, because they couldn't figure out where to put it and they couldn't put it in one country and upset some other country. And it, it shows you that Africa is, is not just a, a unitary continent any more than Asia or Europe is. Uh, it, it's a bunch of countries, 57 or 58, if I recall, each with its own interests. And then you've got the Trump factor, because what Trump did was underline the inconsistency of American intentions. He, like he, in so many other respects, he was blunt. He was nasty, but, you know, Africans aren't going to forget that. And so no matter what Joe Biden says, they'll, they'll say, well, he's only around for another couple of years. And then what? And in the meantime, you've got not only a bureaucracy that is not really excited about African issues because it focuses on the big ones, right? China, Russia, Europe, Asia, but also the fact that Congress has to fork out money. And again, Africa is simply not the highest priority for Congress. So when you take all of that and put it all together, you've got to say, yeah, Joe Biden's heart's in the right place, but can he fork out the money to really prove his point? Everybody, uh, thanks so very much uh, for uh, joining us. Uh, very much appreciated. Dove, uh, hope you and yours have a very happy Hanukkah to our Jewish listeners uh, and look forward uh, to convening again next week for our uh, year in review uh, program before we take a break uh, for uh, the holidays. Everybody, thanks so very much. Really appreciate it. Hope you guys have a great weekend, a very happy holiday, uh, and a great uh, bit of the week until we see you again. Thanks again.